0: Hey everyone, we are sharing a new podcast today and every day this week to celebrate our Zen Parenting Summit. Our free and virtual summit began on January 31st and ends on February 4th. And it's based around Kathy's new book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. It comes out on February 1st. In addition to talking about Kathy's book, we have 15 thought leaders over five inspiring days, a great way for parents To start their year with confidence and optimism Go to the show notes or zenparentingradio.com If you haven't already registered for the summit Once again, it's free And enjoy our daily podcast this week Where we dive into each chapter of Kathy's new book All you need to do is register with your first name, last name, and email address So now on with the show All right, here we go My name's Todd This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This week, every day, we're going through one of Kathy's chapters of her book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. Mm -hmm. We are on Chakra 4. And you know what that means, don't you? I actually don't have any idea what that means. It means we're going to be talking about love. And if you're listening, um, welcome. And if you're watching us, I actually have a... A picture of the book on uh, Zoom. No, not Zoom. Vimeo. It's
1: not just a picture; it's a real thing. It's a real
0: thing. Actually, it's an edited copy.
1: It's a non-edited copy.
0: Whatever it is, it's one of those a four, galley copy. Yeah, the old galley copies. So, uh, chakra four. It's the right to love and be loved. Mm-hmm. I feel like this one is probably there. Not one is more important than the other, but probably the one that people most know most about. Like, I okay, think so. the heart, love. I get it. So it makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, loving ourselves and others and sweetheart, where does the fourth chakra reside?
1: In your heart. So as is what I say in the book is point to yourself right now. No. Todd's doing that on purpose. We point to ourselves. When we point to ourselves, we point to our heart. That's what we do. We don't do what Todd just did.
0: Unless you're... Which is once you explain for those who are listening what I just did.
1: Well, aren't people going to be watching this? Most or
0: are people these... are not. This is a oh, podcast that people listen to on the ZPR platform. So
1: the people who are in the summit
0: might be watching it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Most people will be listening.
1: Okay. So Todd pointed to his head. Yes. So basically a lot of times when we're thinking about who we are, we're focusing on our thoughts. Like this is what I think. This is what I believe. This is who I am. And well, this is who I am could be heart-associated, but a lot of the language we use is around our thinking in our brain. And while our brain and heart um, are ideally um, friends and working as a team, um, the truth is who we are is our heart,
0: our heart center. What color is this chakra?
1: Green, which is everything in my house is green. So you can see... behind. So Tad and I are in a podcast office, for those of you who can see, and you can see behind him that the wall is painted green, that our conference are, you know, we've done a Zen Parenting Conference for five years, and then we're doing the virtual summit this year. Um, But the green is always the color for the conference. And then if you can see behind me, you can just see the same thing. Green is, and it's the outside of our house. It's Green is what I
0: use. I feel like it should be red because when I think of the heart, I think of like Valentine's Day Hearts. Mm. so I might have to uh, talk to whoever's in charge of ch- chakras and mix that up.
1: <laughs> Good luck. Um, red is uh, chakra one.
0: Uh, of course, the root chakra. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you have one, two, three, four, five different sections uh-huh. in this chapter of your book. Yeah, open-heartedness, mm-hmm. empathy, mm-hmm. self-compassion, breathing. And grief. Mm-hmm. Let's start with open heartedness. And okay. I'm gonna read a quote from your book and I want you to riff from it. Okay. The depth and joy and happiness, the depth of joy and happiness we are able to experience is in direct proportion to the amount of open heartedness we can endure. The best feeling in life comes from our willingness to take risk. Risks, breakups, death, loss, and betrayal are all possible outcomes of great love. They all began with an open-hearted willingness, with awareness that our greatest joys can lead to our greatest suffering.
1: Yeah, there's kind of no way around it. It's that um, unfortunate piece um, or fortunate piece, just depends on your perspective, that any kind of great love is a risk, um, that it can be a risk in in having had, had your heart broken and then deciding to try a relationship again, and you fear that something else could happen. Um, it is, you know, for you and I who have been married as long as we are, and, you know, uh, a lot of people, you know, when you get married, you take this oath, "Till death, do us part. So by definition, there will be an end. Mm-hmm. You know, there will, we, we none of us get out of this alive, as they say. Um, and then it can be things like at work, you know, sometimes we might get a promotion that we wanted, but that in itself is a risk because we... Don't know if we'll do the job as well as we did before. You know, the other job, like everything that we want and everything that is part of what we love. I mean, having a child, talk about risk, risk. like your whole life changes. Everything is uprooted. You know, as they say, your heart is walking around in the world. I, you know, I have three daughters and every day they are walking around in the world and there's that risk. Uh, there's just inherent risk of loving somebody that much. And um, that's hard. You know, I, I was we were watching some movies the other day, some movies of when the girls were really little. And um, I can't believe that I, like, let those little babies, like, go to preschool and then left them there. Like, I, of course I believe it. But what I mean is they were so little and I just know that that was so hard for me. You know, you just love them so much and you just want to like keep them in your arms all the time and that's not what love is. As my Angelo says, love is freedom, love is liberation, love is letting go. And oh, is it rough, but that is love.
0: Um, for some reason you used two doors quotes and I feel the need to draw attention to them, sweetie. In
1: what I just said?
0: Uh, before you talked oh. about um, everything has an end. Yeah. You talked about the end, yeah. so... There's that good old song, This Is The End. But then you also talk about Nobody Here Gets Out Alive. True. Five to one, baby, one in five. Thank you, poet Jim Morrison. Yeah, when I was thinking
1: about the heart chakra the whole time I was thinking about Jim Morrison.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So and then I, I, I thought of Brene Brown, and she's not the first person who said this, but I and I think a lot of us other human beings want to just have the good feelings without the bad feelings, and that's not the way it works.
1: Well, and you know, this whole book, you know, Zen Parenting, the whole, the the prologue of the introduction is to demonstrate that life is a paradox. So that's what Zen means, right? You know, the living within the uncertainty, but appreciating what we're experiencing within the uncertainty, the, you know, recognizing the fragility of life and also just uh, enjoying the moment, even though we know it's fragile, like this is the paradox of life. Like we can't have good feelings unless we've had difficult feelings and they go together. You can't, you know, on a real basic level, you know, where there is sun and light, there is shadow. They, they're, they go together and you, you know, where there's life, there's death. Um, There is not a way out of that.
0: No, there is no way out. Um, So this you talk about in this section Mm -hmm. a little bit about how pain or suffering or devastation and shock can crack the shell that we build around our hearts. Mm -hmm. The shell was built to make us feel safe, to provide the stability and certainty as we move through our lives. That's uh, the more pain, the more cracks, the more we are allowed to access what lives underneath it, Mm -hmm. which is almost like paradoxical because I think what you're saying is Um, you know, the pain is kind of a pathway towards something deeper Mm -hmm. and more real, but it's so uncomfortable to experience pain. It
1: is, and again, yet another paradox. It just so happens that we're taping this on a day that we also taped a podcast about suffering. And one of the challenges with suffering is that suffering is, or let's just call it pain, pain in life, because they're not really synonymous, but... Pain in life is inevitable. Like, you can't be a human being and not experience pain. Like, that's just part of life. Um, and we don't like it, but it often leads to a deeper understanding of life overall and us as human beings. So, we afterwards, after the pain has been integrated, because I don't think it ever really goes away, but we like, we find a place for it, um, sometimes unhealthy places and hopefully more healthy places. Um, we then see more clear. So it becomes a lesson or a teaching, or we become a deeper human being. That is really what, you know, why older people are wise, right? Is life experience. They understand. Um So it is, but the big, but is, and this is the paradox is I don't believe suffering is or pain is the only way we learn. Mm-hmm. I think we can learn through joy. I think we can learn through just daily experiences that are quite mundane, <laughs> you know, that not everything has to be suffering, but that thing that you describe about it cracks the shell of our heart is not, it, when, when our heart gets broken open, we literally get broken open so we see and experience everything differently. And if we have had a viewpoint on life and a really structured way of seeing things and this is right, this is wrong, this is this, this is this, this, the breaking allows us to look at all these pieces and decide how we want to put put it back together which may also mean we see things differently. We experience people differently. We, we we forgive ourselves or we're more self-compassionate or we forgive others. Like we become a deeper, richer human being.
0: Um, so in, uh, this is the part where sometimes we can use our pain yeah. for the better. And in the book, you talk about our beautiful niece, Maddie McFadden, mm-hmm. Who um, was diagnosed with a learning disability? Yeah,
1: she was. Uh, she has Turner syndrome. That's a it's a chromosome uh, uh, difficulty. You know, she was born with Tur- Turner syndrome, and so part of that is she has some learning challenges um, with uh, math and with some executive functioning.
0: And what did she decide to do for a living?
1: Well, first of all, even before going to that, she was able to develop different skills when it came to math and organization, and she was able to, things that didn't maybe come as naturally to her, she figured out a way to do it in a way that worked for her, like, like created structures and created like plans and, you know, did things to help with her own executive functioning. And then now that she is an adult, a married adult, by the way, she just got married. um, She uh, is a special ed teacher. So she helps other people
0: mm-hmm. who and have I, the same challenge. And I feel like there's a lot of, you know, whenever anything troubling happens to us, there's always an opportunity for us to use it right, and learn from it and grow from it and almost use it as a, you know, I think of um, the the parents who, who lost their child uh, that created the Amber Alerts, right? Mm-hmm. Like what an awful, devastating thing that happened to this family and they used it for good.
1: And John Walsh in America's Most Wanted. Yeah,
0: there's a million different examples well, out there. Well, a
1: million. That's the thing is like we wouldn't even be able to scratch the surface because most foundations are created in somebody's name, mm-hmm. most uh charity is created in somebody's name, any kind of philanthropy, um most things that we like even for me personally like why do I do what I do for a living? Because when I was a kid, I was super sensitive. I had a lot of emotional experiences. I had a lot of issues with anxiety and I I didn't have language for it. And I felt other people's feelings and all of these things that I didn't always cope with very well. And so as I got older, I kind of figured out some things and thought, I want to support other kids who, or other humans, other, doesn't matter, kids, adults, whoever, who have similar feelings like I do and talk about sensitivity and emotional awareness and self-awareness. So that's why I do what I do. You know, that's, most of us, there is a story and it may not be a literal, like, you know, Maddie, um, having some issues with learning initially and then becoming a special ed teacher looks like a direct line, and for me, it seems like a direct line. But for some people, it's kind of like a windy ride, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's sometimes you have to look at what you're doing and be like, like someone who is an artist, maybe they figured out that art is what decreases their own, or I'll say it the other way, increases their sense of self-worth and helps them like, be kinder to people during the day. And it's not necessarily dealing with an old trauma, but they figured out that that helps their life. And that's why they do what they do. So- I think all of us have a really interesting story. Like on that note, this is just what came to my head. Do you remember when, I think his name was Steve Hartman, used to have a show on CBS This Morning, and he would just look through a phone book mm. and he would find somebody's name and then he would go talk to them and find out their story and then do a show about them because his belief was that everybody has an interesting story, Mm. how they got to where they are, who they are, what their experience was. And all of us are really interesting, Mm. you know, like, and and why we end up where we are is really interesting. And um, and I'm using that word interesting because I don't, you know, it's up to individuals if you call it good, bad, right, wrong. It's just interesting.
0: Um, Before we move on to empathy, Mm -hmm. this is a few sentences that I think I mean, we could do a whole podcast on this one quote that mm-hmm. you have. We want our kids to grow up to be resilient, compassionate, and strong, but we may hinder their ability to develop these skills by, over, by being overprotective or overindulgent. Pain becomes something to avoid rather than something to learn from. We can teach our children to engage with the world from a place of open-heartedness, to practice risks and allow them to struggle, and to trust that, they, that they're that they able to manage struggle and that their true selves are often revealed by things they would never choose. So what I put in quotes or parentheses for me is, can we sit in the darkness when our kids are experiencing something painful, which is something... I think is extremely challenging for us parents to deal with.
1: Well, and I will, you know, put a few more words around that. Sit in the darkness with them. Right. So it's not really we sit in the darkness. It's that we sit with them while they are being challenged <laughs> and not, be, not believe that we're supposed to make it go away or to fix everything. We do what we can. Like, it doesn't mean we're completely hands-off. Like, mm-hmm. if there's something you can do to support them, you know, by all means do it. But if you're trying to deny them the experience like pretend it's not there or, you know, call a bunch of adults and, you know, say, give my kid an A instead of a C. That's going above
0: and beyond. And most of the time it's because of our own discomfort. Correct. We could say, oh, I just want my kid to be uncomfortable. And I say, BS, this is about us not wanting to sit in their pain.
1: Yeah, we, we, and if, and again, let's have some compassion for ourselves with this. If we did not learn when we were younger, how to deal with our own pain and how to manage it and process it and see it for what it is, then when our kids have pain, we don't know how to help them deal with it. And we kind of get frustrated when they are dealing with it, because we never dealt with ours. And we're like, don't make me look at this, because I don't know how to do this myself. And you're making me experience this, and I don't want to feel this. And so sometimes we apply the same tools of denial onto our kids or, you know, so I'm I'm saying that in a compassionate way, because if you don't know how to do it, it's hard to teach it, right. Um, But if you're willing to be open to the idea of support, and love and hugs, and just showing up versus fixing, negating, hopping over, because you can also bypass it completely, mm-hmm. which isn't helpful. Um, if you're willing to try something different and be aware that you're not quite sure. it's it, it, Talk about risky. You don't know where you end up, right? Mm. People always feel better about I've done this 50 times and I know where I end up, even if it's an uncomfortable place. Rather than try something new because uncertainty can be so uncomfortable because they don't know where they're going to end up even if it ends up being a better place they didn't know that so
0: um, so we're on to empathy yeah um, and we just talk, what are the um, the four pillars or whatever they are
1: uh, let's see if I can come up with them off the top of my head so perspective taking um, which is taking you know this comes from Teresa Wiseman by the way she was a nurse nursing scholar um, perspective taking where you can see through somebody else's or, or walk someone in someone else's shoes. I'll say it that way. The second one is non-judgment. Mm-hmm. So like um, listening to somebody's story without judging it, which is, I know naturally human beings judge, but, you know, breathing through your judgment and listening, you know, like and hearing what they have to say before you jump to conclusions. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Number three is recognize emotion.
1: Recognize your own emotion and in, in that again, this is what I was saying before, is if somebody is having sadness, and you don't know how you experience sadness, because you deny your sadness, it can be difficult to see someone else's sadness. You're you, you sometimes like I've seen a lot of parents do this and, and tends to be a lot of men. Todd, tell me if I'm right or wrong. But when their child is sad, there's a lot of like, oh, get over it, move on. Women do this too. But there's Oftentimes with sons, there's a little more of a you
0: you yeah, don't need to father-son be. dynamic. Yes. Yeah, like toughen him up.
1: Toughen him up because I don't get to feel my sad. So you're not going to feel your sad when really the ability to feel sad and release that sad is what makes us more empathetic people towards others, more compassionate toward all people. Um
0: and it's a sign of strength. It's a absolutely.
1: I mean, to know your emotional experience and to process it as it is.
0: How many of us are actually willing to do that? Yeah. Um, and then the
1: fourth one
0: communicate emotion yeah
1: and so not only do you need to recognize your emotion but you need to be able to communicate back you know this is what i'm seeing from you this is what i'm experiencing um you know it's it's the ability to discuss that
0: i think this is a really important quote you say there's a big difference between loving our children which i'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast that you you love your children and our children feeling loved Mm -hmm. like that that That's a lot there.
1: I know. And that's a big one. And that's it's a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Vulnerable Mm -hmm. feeling. You know, like what does, I don't even, a lot of people are like, ah, don't even tell me that. Um, Loving somebody is the way that we think love is supposed to be. So it's a little like...
0: We're seeing it through our own lens.
1: The golden rule of do unto others as you would have done to yourself. And the truth is, is you have to love people in the way... So they can feel the love and where the way they feel love may be different than the way you experience love and your feelings of I'm loving you right now may be based in fear or they may be based in control. And even though you're like, yeah, but I love my kid. Like, I don't know if it's in this chapter that I explain this, but I talked to a lot of teenagers and college students, um, and fifth graders about, uh, you know, sex ed and oftentimes things come up around, um, you know, molestation or date rape or, and this comes up with my, you know, grown women clients too. And they will tell me that they never told their parents. And it's because part of it is because they hadn't talked about, you know, sex ed in the family and that language wasn't available to them, but they also just felt like, um, their parents would look at them differently or would be angry with them or would make them feel something that they didn't want to feel or, um, possibly do something that they were afraid. Like, you know, a big story for, um, I was listening to Tarana Burke, uh, Tarana Burke's book and it was about, she was molested when she was young. And then she was told by adults, don't, tell this person, which was, I think it was her father or stepfather, because he will then hurt the person who hurt you. And so she was then left to carry the weight of all of this experience because she couldn't hurt the people. Do you see what I mean? Like we as human beings end up worried about how other people are going to experience, um, us, you know, I kind of got off on a tangent there as far as well, like what and empathy guess,
0: is. And this is a small part of what you just shared, but I remember reading somewhere that uh, if a woman, girl, teenager mm-hmm. is assaulted, the last, you know, sometimes the last person they want to tell is their dad. Right. So um, I'm pretty sure I've made an explicit agreement with each of my daughters that if, God forbid, something were to happen, I can handle it, we can work through it together. Like Mm -hmm. you almost need to explicitly create some type of agreement like it's okay.
1: Well and also you know and again a little bit tangential when we're talking about this but when it comes to things like that you can say that to them like a lot of parents will say to their kids you can come to me with anything but is that their day to day relationship Mm. with their kids that's just words right? like can I really come to you with anything because when I came home and I got a B instead of an A you told me that you were going to take my phone away or when I came home and said that I really wanted to think about like I had had a drink last weekend you grounded me for a month instead of asking me, like, what was that experience like? Or were you safe? Or let's talk about this. And there's a lot of like, they can come to me. But the truth is, the experience your child has had with coming to you, and I'm putting that in air quotes, has become punitive or disconnected. And so they're not... So it's much more about the behavior than the, hey... Guess what? I'm here for anything. Even though, Todd, with your experience, you have done that. And you also in our home, we talk about these things very openly. And we've had them watch the hunting ground and we've had them, you know, we've talked about assault cases in the media, and it's an open conversation. Yeah, right. And so they know that not only can you handle it, but you're you're willing to talk about it all the time. And so that is there's just a difference. And so again. We, we kind of leaped a little bit. What I was talking about is people feel love differently. And so sometimes what we perceive to be loving does not land that way. Now, what can we do? Know our kid. How do they, re- like, right before we started this, I had texted my kids something because I know during the day there are certain things that, sh- that make her kind of enjoy, she enjoys certain texts that she gets from me. She's told me that. So I do it. Mm. It's a way that she feels love yeah you know it's simple stuff like that.
0: Um, i I can't skip the opportunity for you to explain what the thirteen year old birthday party is like in our household. oh,
1: sure. So um, I have three daughters and what I've done for each of them is, and I also did this for Maddie, my niece that we were just talking about. Um, But when they turned 13 or got into their teenage years, we had a party for them where I invited um, all the women that are important in their life or important in my life to surround them. And we, and my daughters have been part of the programming of this, meaning they choose the food and, you know, are we going to dress up or is it going to be low key inside or outside, all that kind of stuff. It's not just me. And then these women come and they read them a letter or the women have also just given them the letter. Um, You know, they don't have to read it out loud, but then shared what they wish maybe they would have known at 13. And also, um, what, that they're there for them. Like my goal as a mom is not about throwing a party. (laughs) My goal is to let my daughters know that there are many women around them that love them and that are there for them. I also want them to know this about all genders. It's not just women, but it just so happens when you're getting into your, those early, you know, early teenage years, there's a lot of primarily female experiences, um, that they often need support with.
0: Yeah, it's not like for. your traditional party because no. I've been um, a voyeur to some moments of those. and you all sit in a circle mm-hmm. and yeah, either before or after you eat your food. and it's it's I don't want to call it intense, but it's it's, a, it's a non-distracted, Mm -hmm. part of this experience Mm -hmm. where you where people just share and I'm sure there's a lot of tears and everything else so anyways I just think it's a wonderful tool that all parents should do for their kids whether or not Uh, regardless of their gender.
1: Well, and just just so I can say that, my nephew, I also asked him if he wanted something similar with the men or men and women in his life. And he preferred to have letters mailed to him. He wanted to have a different kind of experience and that was his choice. And Mm -hmm. we weren't gonna override that and say, no, you have to do it this way. And so we were all, um, all all genders in his life wrote him letters Mm -hmm. and told him these are the things that are important in the teenage years and that were there for him. So my, I mean, probably the most important thing I could say is this is not something you force on your child. This is something you develop with them and create it in a way that feels, again, what feels loving to them.
0: Yeah. Um, We're on to self-compassion. Evolutionary evolutionary psychologists have explained that we all have a negativity bias Mm -hmm. and instincts that gives our negative experiences a lot of power. We evolved to notice our flaws and mistakes more than our successes. And before you talk about that, we did do a podcast called Negativity... Bi- it's called What's Your One Thing? It's podcast number 548. And I'll include it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about negative negativity bias, loss aversion, and getting out of the way so our kids can become the people they're supposed to be. So anything you want to say about negativity bias?
1: Just that if we know that we have it, then we have a better understanding of our neurobiology and why we often have difficulty reading 10 reviews that you know nine of them are positive but then we see the one that's not and that's where our brain goes it's just part of survival Mm -hmm. and we don't have to be self-critical we just need to understand that that's kind of the way it works so if we can celebrate also the positive things that happen in our life and the nine things that are good if we can really bring some conscious attention there it's not going to change the negativity bias but maybe it won't be so loud
0: you go on to say we think being hard on ourselves will make um, make us tougher and mm-hmm. less lazy mm-hmm. or make things, I don't know, I... I'm miswrote it, but less lazy. But studies show that actually decreases our motivation and productivity and can lead us to being preoccupied with failure.
1: Well, and I would, uh, with this, I would really push people to read Kristen Neff's research around self-compassion because this is actually part of the research, is the belief system that pushing ourselves or our children and making, you know, bringing shame or guilt into behavior um, will... Well, and mm, this gets a little... Iffy because guilt. If someone feels guilt about some about a behavior, um, that is actually a positive thing because that means that's not in alignment with who they are, and they may be able to change that. But. Fear and shame, this idea that they're, you know, what's wrong with you, or I can't believe you did this again, or just kind of the hammering of the self, like, um, is a, it's not going to increase motivation in the least. It's actually going to decrease motivation and not only cause a child or yourself to maybe push against and to even do worse, but it could cause long-term damage of like a self, uh, like believing that the self is not capable. But I would really... Uh, you know, like I said, I only spend a few pages on that research, but Kristen Neff's research around self-compassion really demonstrates this well.
0: Um, We are on to breathing. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about a few different breathing techniques. Um, Tonglen. 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 Mm Uh, tong means uh, sending out or letting go and Lin means receiving or accepting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, anything more you want to say? Because I, I like including the practical tools. Uh,
1: yeah, and, and I, you know, I offer a bunch of breathing techniques. But this one, the reason that I wanted to write about it is I initially as a yoga teacher and also just as someone who reads a lot about breathing and pranayama, I was really didn't like the idea of Tong len initially because it scared me as somebody who... Um, I experience myself, well, my experiences have been em, as, as an empath where I absorb other people's stuff. And I'm always trying to avoid that if possible or to decrease that. And Tonglen, the whole idea is that when you are feeling the suffering of others, that you breathe it in and then exhale out compassion. And I, I experienced this initially when people are telling me about this is like, oh my God, that's like the last thing I want to do. But what I realized when I started practicing it, and you know, when I was forced to practice it is in the middle of the pandemic, because there were so many things going on, so much suffering that I could not handle it. Like I would wake up in the morning and be like, "I there is so hospitals and neighbors and schools, it was too much. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And what it is, is it's not about breathing in other people's pain. It's an accepting of what you're seeing or feeling. So you take the deep breath in and you're not saying, I'm going to take other people's pain. You're saying, all this is happening. Breathe in. And then when you exhale, you breathe out compassion for all those people. So instead of denying it or looking away, you you, you take it in as I am seeing this, but here's what I have to offer. Mm. So it really switched the way I looked at it. So I wanted to make sure I included it.
0: Um, grief, mm-hmm. last but not least, mm-hmm. uh, Patton Oswalt, he was mm-hmm. criticized over getting, getting over the death of his wife too quickly. <laughs> what, um, what,
1: like yeah. some,
0: and most people know who Patton Oswalt is, yeah. but will you quickly say? Sure.
1: Uh, so Patton Oswalt is a, a comedian and actor and he unfortunately lost his wife when she was, she's actually was our age, he's our age and she died in her sleep and, um, it was very sudden and unexpected, and um, it was awful. And he, they had a daughter, and he was raising her alone. And he happened to meet in that time period after um, his wife died. I don't know how long. I have no info about that. But he met another actress named Meredith Salinger, who um, they ended up dating and you know becoming friends. And he married her about a year after his wife passed away. And he shared the news on Twitter. And, you know, obviously, it wasn't that everybody was ganging up on him. But there was a lot of language around you, I can't believe you did this, you got over your wife too fast. And, you know, just a lot of judgment, mm. talk about not being empathetic. And, you know, he handled it, you know, a comedian, you know, he said a lot of things, but he handled it really well. And he said what all people who have been in grief would say, which is, I will never get over this. Like you never get over a loss like that. What you do is you learn to live with it Mm -hmm. and you need, and the biggest gift that you can give to that person who you love, especially if it's someone that you love that you lost is to keep living. And what does that look like? It looks different for everybody. Not everybody needs to remarry or date right away. It's that's not what he's saying. He's saying, "I had an opportunity to live, Mm -hmm. and I chose that." And Michelle, who is his wife, would you know he? he, he, That's the way he honored her. And so, I just kind of think that when it comes to grief, and you know, you know, Megan. uh, Divine, who I, I think I quote her a few times in there. She's an expert on grief, like her experience with it, you know, that you, with grief, what you're doing is you're, you're broken, completely open, you fall apart and you put the pieces back together and you have to integrate that piece of pain, the loss of somebody, the loss of maybe an aspect of your life, whatever it may be. And you have to integrate it into you and then put yourself back together. So it's always with you. Mm. You don't, You know, I can, um, I was just taking a walk the other day and, um, a song came on, I was with my daughter, um, and a song came on and we, we actually walked by a place and a song was on. So it wasn't, we weren't wearing earphones and it was totally about my dad. Right. And so I could, in that moment, if I wanted to have a full, like grief experience of crying, I got teary and I had all the feelings. Um, but I that, that is, it's been how many years and that can come up just as fast for me, you know, that is grief.
0: Well, and you, and um, you got sick about six months after your dad died mm-hmm. and um, I don't, you know, we're running out of time here, yeah. but is there anything that you want to share regarding your experience of, did you think that you were processing through your your dad's death in a healthy way and then all of a sudden your body got sick and that it needed to do more than you thought it did?
1: Yeah. So my experience, and this is the way I view it, is that I, um, my dad was sick for a long, long time, years and years. Like first time he got sick was when he was 60 and he died when he was 77. So it was like 17 years of on and off, you know, being pretty ill. And then the last couple of years were really bad. Um, And so I had a lot of grief. That were that lived in my body, a lot of like discomfort, a lot of back and forth. People who have gone through this know what I mean. And um, when he did pass away, I I feel like I grieved very well, um, whatever that means to me. You know, I had a lot of tears, therapy, discussion, processing, openness. Um, But about a year afterwards, or six months afterwards, I ended up getting the flu, and I got really, really sick. I mean, like scary sick, like. Difficulty with breathing and a lot of like, um,
0: yeah, you're sick for a a month, month.
1: yeah. And the way I view it in hindsight, I didn't view it this way in the moment, was that I know that grief is held in the lungs. That's something we know from, you know, Chinese medicine. And that I feel because it was a respiratory illness that I had that I just had a lot that needed to come out. And I also had the flu. I had the flu, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did have a physical illness. But I also feel like there was a lot going on inside of me. You know, if you understand anything about the body keeps score and how we carry our emotions inside of our body, I think there was a lot that needed to come out. And the interesting thing was, and I could see this pretty clearly. Um, I remember when I was at the tail end, like the last week of my illness, like I spent a lot of time, my dad, my dad was cremated, but he has a brick here in town that my women's circle, um, it was a gift from my women's circle and it just says his name on it. And I would sit, I'd cry thinking about it, I would just sit at his brick and like cry. Like yeah. I had a bunch of like, like my illness felt really connected to, um, him and that's just, you know, it was just that that was part of the process and that could have happened right away. That could have happened years later. Like some people, I was just listening to a podcast this morning about a girl who had been in one of those troubled teen schools that we've heard so much about that Paris Hilton was in. Um, and she's just now, she's wrote a book about it and going through all of her grief in regards to her childhood. And she's right now having all of that kind of painful, you know, experience of grief where her body is releasing. And I just think, You know, it's just my story, Mm -hmm. um, but it's the way I see it and the way that I experience grief. And and again, I write a lot about it in the book that it's not as simple as it may sound, Um, but I have a lot of respect for grief, meaning I think it is a way that we feel and experience and it's also the way through. Mm. Do you see what I mean? We have to go through it. It's not something we're like, I don't want to do that. The only
0: way out is through. You got it. Um, all right. So, preview for tomorrow, as I put on our closing music, is Chakra Six, which five? is, oh, I'm sorry, Chapter Five. Thank you, sweetie. We're, chakra Five. Which is playing, communication.
1: It's the throat chakra.
0: Valuing authentic communication, mm-hmm. the right to speak and hear truth. You got so, it. hopefully, you will all join us for tomorrow's Chakra Five. And in the meantime, keep trucking.
1: Thank you. Adios. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are grateful for your support.
0: Remember to register for our Zen Parenting Virtual Summit, where you will learn from 15 thought leaders and learn more about Kathy's book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World.
1: If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen, pre-ordering my new book, or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com slash resources. It's our new page where you can find everything we do in
0: one place. If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking and we'll talk to you again next week.